All right, everyone, we're continuing our study through the letter to the Romans. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to Romans chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 17 through 29. If you're using one of the house Bibles that you got on the way in, it's going to be on page 548. 548. And as always here at Park, if you're a guest here with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, make sure to take one home with you as a small gift from us. We are so glad that you're here. As you've come to a gathering where saints have a past and sinners have a future. So we invite you to bring your whole selves this morning. But we won't make a promise that you'll leave unchanged. Now here's where we've been thus far. So I want to give just a very short overview of Romans chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2. In the first half of Romans chapter 1, we started out by saying that our recipe for unity in the church is the gospel. Which is not merely good advice, but rather it's a good news announcement of what Jesus came to accomplish. And we're not ashamed of that good news because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone from the first moment you believe until you drop and meet Jesus face to face. In the second half of chapter 1, we then heard why the good news was necessary. And it was because those without the law of God, that is Gentiles, were under God's wrath because of their rejection of his revelation in creation. That instead of giving God the honor and thanks that he is due, they rather worshipped and served created things. Building their lives around something other than God, they ungodded God. And the consequences of that are played out in the notorious list of vices which we all can find ourselves in. In chapter 2, we heard that not only the Gentiles... But Jews, that means everybody alike, are experts at self-presentation and that we can blindly justify ourselves by our own supposed goodness compared to others. But that won't cut it because there's going to be a day when not only our deeds but all of our motivations will be brought into the light. Whether our good deeds were for the praise of God and his glory or for the praise of ourselves which connects us now to this morning. And at this point in the letter, I can imagine some of the Jewish people in the churches to whom this letter was written to begin to squirm in their seats a little. Because now there's a hint that they too are being lumped in with those nasty Gentiles back in chapter 1. And Paul's writing in a particular manner here as to heighten the sense of any self-righteousness that the Jews may be confident in. Because some of those congregants would have been sitting in their seat saying to themselves, yeah, that's right. God's judgment on Gentile Jimmy, the idolater, is totally just. He can't live up to the standards that he set in his own heart. Way to give the Gentiles a left hook, Paul. I knew they didn't have it all together. But Paul isn't a single puncher. He's good at throwing combinations. And so here comes the straight right. For religious Jewish Johnny. Will you follow along with me? Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on, the God, rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Look at the person next to you and say, here comes the straight right. 
Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's switch gears, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew, or you could say, for no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew or a Christian is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. His praise is from man rather than God. Here's my big idea this morning. There's nowhere to hide. Let's pray. Father, your word declares, and I know it very well, that it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, for it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For when we come to your word, you open us up to see what's true about ourselves and to show us who you are and what you'd have for us. And Father, I ask now through the preaching of the word that you would create a new galaxy of thoughts in our minds. That Father, that our minds would be transformed by your word so that we can think thoughts after you and then in turn be shaped by you and then take hold of the life which is truly life. So, Father, by your spirit, I ask that you'd have your way in this room this morning. That your power and your power alone would go forth by your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, what's fascinating about Paul's indictment on the Gentiles and the Jews in the first two chapters of Romans is that it's really an in-depth analysis of the story of what's been called the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And usually so much is made... in the story about the disrespectful son who wasted all of his inheritance on wild living, just pure licentiousness. He did whatever he felt good and whatever was right in his own eyes. Yet actually the story is intended to be built up to put his older brother on the hot seat due to his angry response to the grace and mercy extended to his younger brother. For when he came to his senses, he went back home and then threw himself in his father's lavish love. But the older brother wasn't feeling that. Because his response is not, you know what, I'm so glad that my brother is back and daddy has been so kind to him. But rather it's, all these years I've been slaving for you, father. I've committed myself. I've never disobeyed your orders. 
and you've never even given me a goat so I could have just a little cookout with my boys. And when you read the story at that point, you just begin to cringe, right? And you begin to ask yourself, do I have this attitude towards God and others who are the recipients of his scandalous grace? Whether it's different colored people, the gal in the other political party, poor people, rich people, messed up people, suburban people. You may not have some licentious lifestyle where it's a little bit more obvious that you are in need of God's mercy, but have you ever asked yourself, are you a cold legalist, blindly mastering the craft of your own self-justification? And if we're honest, we all can be either of those at times, right? We can be a little loose with our faith, and we can be a little legalistic, but for most of us here in this room, I would dare to say that we have more of a bent towards self-justifying legalism. We love to justify ourselves. I'm good because I have and do this and or I don't have and don't do that. And Paul's anticipating this because he knows that the religious Jews have two more colossal lines of defense to justify their supposed righteousness from God. The law, which is mentioned 12 times in our passage, and circumcision, which is mentioned 10. But there's nowhere to hide. Let's splash around in verses 17 through 24 and first address the law. But remember, the key word here is going to be rely. Rely. But if you call yourself a Jew, or if you call yourself a Christian, and rely on the law and boast in God. Let's just stop right there because that baby is loaded. And there's all sorts of things that we can draw out of there. Why in the world could the Jewish Christians at Rome, how could they boast in God? There's a whole lot of reasons that we can draw just in that sentence. Number one, to be a Jew meant that you were prided in your racial lineage and nationality. Their identity as God's people went all the way back to the patriarch Abraham and he was a big deal. Number two, they could boast in their association with Moses who gave them the law. They could do some serious name dropping with Moses. Yeah, that Moses, the guy who parted the Red Sea, Moses. He's a part of that people. They could boast in their distinction as being the chosen people of God to share and show his ways to the rest of the world. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and chapter 7. They could boast in their morality and that they knew how to make the right decisions because they had the law. They could know God's will and approve of what was excellent. Fifth, they could boast in their knowledge. They not only had the scriptures, but were trained in them to teach. That was their job. They were supposed to be guides for the blind, lights for the darkness, instructors to the foolish, and teachers to children or the immature. They were supposed to teach the Gentiles. That was that, that's what those things are alluding to there. That's how the Jews saw themselves. They knew their assignment. Talk about blessed. 
The Gentiles had God's revelation in creation, but the Jews had that and his words written down on scrolls for thousands of years. They got resources. You know, there's a lot of talk about privilege these days. Some of it is really good and some of it is really true. Some of it is not very good and not very helpful. But let's get this straight this morning. Everybody in this room has been privileged to have access to God's word. Can we agree on that together? I'm not even counting my phone. I got all sorts of Bibles at home. I got an ESV Bible, an NIV Bible, a New King James Version Bible. I got a message Bible, a Zondervan Bible, a Holy Bible, a Gospel Transformation Bible, a Reformation Bible, a Children's Storybook Bible, <laughs> a Big Picture Bible, Mission of God Bible, Pew Bible, and all sorts of house Bibles. I got all sorts of Bibles. But as I was putting together my list of Bibles, as I was preparing for this message, I realized that probably our best titled Bible of the bunch is what's called the Action Bible. Because it's one thing to possess a Bible, but it's a whole other thing to actually do what's written in it. By the way, if you need a Bible... Come see me after service. You can have any of those Bibles. Here's how this was supposed to work. The Jewish people would know the scriptures, live the scriptures, and teach the scriptures to build up their own community of faith and to share that with those outside their community. And they said, but I want to take a note on that real quick. This is why we preach through books of the Bible so we don't misalign we're taking 10 months in Romans. Not that we're anything cool or anything great by doing that because I've never been in a study that long personally myself. <laughs> but because we need to teach the whole counsel of God. Because if some of us, we, we, right, we have things that we're good at and we like and we have hobby horses and things like that and the message can all be the same. But from week to week, we need the whole counsel of God addressing all of life. And we're supposed to build up the community in the word of God. The Bible, which is spirit. I just want to just say that. And as they themselves lived out the scriptures, that would enhance the attractiveness of God's kingdom and rule, which he is inviting all people into. A kingdom that is good and righteous and just and full of joy and peace. It's shalom, the kingdom that we all long for. But there's verse 21. It's one thing to know the scriptures, to have them all memorized, and another to teach them. Jason, it's another to teach them. Because you had a lot of knowledge and information, seven years of Bible college and seminary. But Jason, you can't leave out the living it part. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
Now, there's some different thoughts on why Paul lists these specific sins of stealing, adultery, and robbing of temples in verse 22, which are a few different ways of breaking God's law. And I think I've arrived that they are specific sins that have been committed by members in the church at Rome. Stealing and adultery are just outright hypocrisy. They are specifically two of the Ten Commandments. If you call yourself a Christian and are known as a thief, people are going to be left scratching their heads. Adultery, I too hope, speaks for itself. But remember, Matthew chapter 5 is in play here. For Jesus taught, you have heard it is said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman or a man lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And God knows these things about us. Now the robbing of temples, that's really interesting. I had to do a little bit of digging on that. And it would fall under the commandment of you shall not covet. But how would people be robbing temples of the idols they seemingly detest? Well, in Israel, if there was a pagan temple dedicated to some false god, the zeal of the religious leaders to keep the land pure from idolatry idolatry would cause them to go and tear down that temple. But usually what was in those temples were artifacts of gold and silver which had been given in dedication to the false gods that were being worshipped. So there would be this appearance on the outside of destroying this temple that which, which would lead people astray from worshipping the one true God. But what happened is that they would take the idols of gold and silver on the inside and then sell them for the money. That is slick. That's crooked cop stuff. Go in and annihilate the drug house, cuff the suspects, take the drugs and the guns, and then go sell them on the street yourself. Welcome to Chicago. Not every police officer, by the way. I want to get that straight as well. But look at the wording. Their hypocrisy is convincing. People were teaching, preaching, saying, and abhorring, but they weren't really doing what they were proclaiming was so good. They hypocritically despised all the violence, sex, greed, and idolatry, and smut of the gangbangers, of the crooked businessmen downtown, and all those Gentiles yet they binge-watched it on Netflix. I told you there's nowhere to hide. You may not climb the facade of the Chicago Board of Trade building downtown and bow down to the statue of Ceres, the Roman goddess who stands on top of that building. You may not just go up and actually bow down to that statue of that goddess. But have you stopped to ask yourself in the busyness of the rat race, in the craziness what can be a city life, have you stopped to ask yourself if you've ordered your life around what she represents? A harvest of increase. 
accumulating more and more and more. Verses 23 and 24 begs the question of us. It begs the question of me. Do we who boast in the Bible first dishonor God by not doing what it says? Our vertical relationship, do we first dishonor him? And then second, does it cause others to defame his name? Horizontal. Verse 24 is a combination of Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 26, where God's name is mocked due to the defeat and enslavement of his people by foreign powers. In other words, when God's people were taken into exile and defeated, the gods of the foreign armies and powers, they'd be like, your God's not so powerful and good because look, you're all defeated and enslaved by this. For God's word is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of us. It's always the same findings across the board, by the way, whether it's from Pew Research, Barna, or the Institute for Religious Research. Always at the top somewhere, a main reason a person doesn't consider becoming a Christian is because of Christians themselves. And it just breaks your heart, right? Particularly around the issues of hypocrisy and judgmentalism. It's always at the top in all the research of why people don't become Christians. Steven Weinberg, the renowned Nobel Prize winner in the realm of theoretical physics, once said, good people will do good things and bad people will do bad things. But for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. We can do better. We are empowered to do better. So Paul's taken on the colossal front of the law that they're hiding behind, and he smashed it. The Jews' claim to righteousness is now going to be in circumcision. Because that's the sign that he goes next after, which was a physical marker of being accepted into God's covenant community where after a Jewish baby was born, on the eighth day they were to be circumcised as a reminder that they were part of God's people. But if they broke their end of the deal, they'd be cut off from the promises of God. It served a lot like baptism does and that it was an outward sign, albeit a painful one, of an inward reality. And in verses 25 and 29, even though it reads like a Dr. Seuss book, I mean, seriously, try saying circumcision five times as fast as you can. What Paul is getting at is that circumcision has value if you obey the word because the sign backs up your profession. But if you don't, it has no value. It's just something that was once a bloody mess. Circumcision meant that you were identified as a keeper of the law, but if someone uncircumcised kept the law and you didn't, it shows he or she was more about what you weren't, even though you had the sign. And if that was the case, the uncircumcised person could take you to task because you had the privilege 
of possessing the law on a scroll and the sign of the covenant, but neither was represented in your life. How many of us know that we all can possess the playbook and wear the jersey, but that doesn't necessarily make you a player? I know this on the basketball court. You know, there's always the guy that comes, we're getting ready to play pickup, and he comes with the Bulls jersey on. He's got his Air Jordans on. He's got his headbands. He's got a tattoo of the Bulls bull on his arm. And everybody knows who's really been around basketball and has played a little bit knows that that guy, he's not a player. You do not come to the basketball court with all that gear on. Because he's over at the end of the court, he's dribbling off his leg, and he's always the last guy picked on the team. You can wear all the stuff. You can have all of the stuff. But that doesn't make you a player. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew or no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew or a Christian is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. And this is a striking contrast to what was believed in Paul's day. He's telling us that true Jewishness or that true Christianity and genuine circumcision are not ethnic, law-possessing, and physical matters, but rather a true relationship with God is a matter of the heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit, giving you a desire to follow and obey. And God has to do that work in us because we can't do it. We all fall short of keeping his law in so many ways and we all have a bent towards self-justification. I'm good because I do that or I don't do that. How does this sound today? And I've heard all of these things that I'm about to share over the years in pastoral ministry and being a follower of Jesus for 25 years now. Strike up, a, strike up a conversation, maybe meet someone for the first time, getting to know some people in the congregation, some people out on the street, you want looking to have a spiritual conversation to see where people are at in their faith. Because it means everything. Well, I'm good with God because I was baptized as a child. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm Lutheran. I'm Catholic. I'm Presbyterian. Yeah, I, I've taken the Lord's Supper before. I'm a member of my parish. I'm a Republican. And there's no way that a Democrat could be a Christian. I'm a Democrat. And there's no way a Republican could be a Christian. How could you vote for that guy? Hmm. Just like Jewish Janelle, 
we too can have some things that we hide behind. Let me give a paraphrase of a paraphrase of verses 25 through 29. For our day in context, so what if you've been baptized? So what if you're a church member? Those only count for something if there's been a real change in your life. If your heart has been truly affected and made tender towards God with a loving response to him and a love for others. Don't you know that you're not a Christian if you are only one externally? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. No, a Christian is someone who is a Christian on the inside verse and then expresses that life on the outside. It's an inside-out thing, you see. What matters is an inner baptism, a heart membership with God's people. And that is a supernatural work, not a human one. After all, the big idea of the biblical storyline in redemptive history is salvation is from the Lord. And that will set you free from your hypocrisy and judgmentalism. The need to constantly need to be affirmed by others for your good deeds. Chasing after emotional experiences and power displays in the church. As if the only Christianity that's legit unless there's like five demons cast out during service. By the way, I believe in casting out of demons. But just saying. You know that, right? The li- Christianity ain't real unless there's all sorts of tongues going on and demons are slayed. All that. Always looking for the power display. That's the true Christianity. Here's the power of the gospel. You work your full day of work and you come home and help your wife with the laundry. That's the power of the gospel. It's in the little things. Don't get all hyped up. The power of the gospel is in everyday life, no matter what you're doing every day. All day, every day. And it also keep you from the dead religiosity of keeping up with traditions in order to secure right standing with God. Dear friends, having your Bible marked up and having black duct tape all around it like my Bible and being religiously active may show that you mean business about your righteousness but remember that it doesn't make you righteous. Imagine two women who each had a son having a conversation in the afternoon before the first Passover in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. And one gal, let's call her Betty, says, you know what, I'm a little nervous about what's going to happen. If I'm honest, Moses seems to be a little unpredictable. And I'm struggling to trust him in this circumstance we find ourselves in with Pharaoh. To which the other lady, Destiny, replied, What are you worried about, Betty? Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and painted its blood around the doorpost of your house? Well, yeah, I'm not stupid considering all the crazy things that have happened around here with all those plagues, all those frogs. Flies and gnats and hail. 
And now there's this threat of the firstborn being killed by the destroying angel. Yeah, I did what Moses says, but I don't know. I feel like we should do something ourselves here. But destiny replies, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. I'm ready. Well, that night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which of the two women lost their son? Neither. Rescue from death doesn't pass over their homes because of their intensity of their faith, but because of the blood of the Lamb. It's because of the blood of the Lamb and all that other stuff you do, all the self-sacrificing, all the service, all what you do is a response to his love. Not the means of your righteousness. It's the response to it. In the gospel, law and circumcision have a new significance. Rather than boasting in our so-called performance of the law, we can brag about the one and only who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, the one who never broke a rule, the one who was circumcised for us, and that he was cut off in his relationship with the Father on that bloody cross, the Lamb who was slain in judgment to take away all of our sin so we wouldn't have to experience the judgment to come. And I haven't said his name yet. But I'm going to say it now. It's King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Just like in the beginning when Adam and Eve went and hid behind those bushes, trying to cover up their nakedness and shame, like we've been trying to do ever since, Jesus is still calling out through the proclamation of the gospel, where are you? There's nowhere to hide. I know you're there. And there's no need to hide anymore because you can hide yourself in me. Do you trust him? In closing. Up to this point in Romans, it's evident that cleaned up, suit-wearing, Religious people need Christ just as much as some idolater worshiping a statue in Indonesia. And in some sense, maybe even more because they may think that they're better than others and they may appear to be in terms of their outward activity. But remember that the gospel speaks to the matter of the... And the more enhanced the privilege, such as having a lot of Bibles the more heinous could their sin be in not following it. Second, I imagine in a gathering this big this morning that there are some of us in here who have not placed their trust in Jesus. Some of you actually may have been going to church for most of your life. 
But something has happened this morning where you realize you've been trusting in your own performance and not in Jesus's. And if you're honest, your performance has even gotten you questioning a little because you recognize that you may be serving only out of guilt or pressure rather than out of love for him. And that pursuit has made you a little unsure of where you're really standing with God this morning. Because you see other people seemingly serve him with a heartfelt commitment and it causes you to question. Because when you compare yourselves to them, it just doesn't look very good for you. I just want to say to you this morning, as a friend, there's no need to hide it anymore. Stop trying to put on a front. It won't work. God knows you can't cut it. That's why he took it upon himself to do something about it. Humble yourself. And come to the Father's loving embrace. He will not turn you away. For a humble and contrite heart he will not despise. Lastly, you got to go tell somebody that news. You got to go tell somebody that news. That's news worth sharing. You've got to tell somebody that news. The most basic news, that news. Don't worry about how little that you know. Let them know what you do know. After all these years, it still blows me away at what our big God can do with just a little. That's just his manner of things. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our King and Savior. And we're so thankful for the gospel this morning. We're so grateful, Father. We find ourselves in this story. We find ourselves hiding behind our religion, hiding behind the things we do or we don't do, maybe even signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper or being a part of a certain church or denomination or because grandma was a Christian, so that means I got to be one. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you tear down those things so that we truly can, as I prayed this morning, take hold of the life which is truly life. Humble our hearts this morning to be swallowed up in your redemption that we can't earn our righteousness, but you give it to us in Jesus. Not only have our sins been forgiven at the cross, but Father, we've also been given his righteousness. And that's incredible. It's how it was meant to be. It's how we were supposed to operate in this good place that you've given us. Father, thank you for your spirit, which helps us along in this journey. Thank you for your word, which always helps redirect our course. We're so thankful for your word. May we not take it for granted. And Father, I pray that you'd put in us a deep and abiding passion to share and showcase the love of God in Christ Jesus by sharing the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Turn away from your stuff and turn to Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.